0: Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode features descriptions of suicide, immolation, gruesome bodily harm, and disturbing imagery. It also may be difficult for those with a fear of elevators or a fear of heights. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Whoever invented the Fitbit clearly had it out for Clara. She hated exercise, and walking, and moving. But that stupid device on her wrist now ran her life, beeping incessantly when she wasn't living up to its expectations. The number of steps taken feature had made her competitive with herself. She was no longer content to take the elevator. That was what yesterday's Clara did. It had to be the stairs. She climbed all eight flights of stairs to her class, sweating the entire way. The counter ticked upwards and she felt a hollow sense of accomplishment. She could exercise if a computer made her feel inadequate. Class went fine, but Claire was itching to see those numbers go up again. As the professor dismissed them, she dashed out of her seat and headed for the stairs. The air felt heavy this time. Something kept pushing at her from behind, but there was nothing there when she checked. She soldiered on, keeping her eyes on the Fitbit rather than the stairs. Clara felt eyes watching her. A stray cough. Soft, hushed voices. A piece of fabric brushed against her ankles. Clara stopped. She examined the floor around her, but there was nothing. Fire licked at the back of her leg. She yelped and stamped it out, biting down hard on her lip in hopes of controlling the pain. But when the flames were gone, the pain was too. Puzzled, she continued down the stairs, sure she needed to drink either more or less coffee. As she started to walk again, the fire came back. It singed through her capri pants in an instant, she screamed for help, stumbling backwards against the railing. Her back smacked against the cold metal, and she fell six stories. Her Fitbit beeped, congratulating her on moving so swiftly. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast Original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Brown Building, the site of the deadliest industrial accident in New York City history and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. The Brown Building, built between 1900 and 1901, is a ten-story academic complex at the heart of New York University's Greenwich Village campus. Home to both the biology and chemistry departments, it's rare to see students roaming the halls without goggles on their foreheads. Many of the pre-med students that have class in the Brown Building don't know its tragic history until they hear a strange scream echo down the enclosed corridors or see a figure run for the stairwell, only to disappear right before the door. That is because the Brown Building was the site of the deaths of 146 garment workers during New York City's deadliest industrial accident, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire of 1911. The Triangle Waste Company rented the top three floors of the Brown Building. Work conditions were far from safe. While the recently formed International Ladies' Garment Workers Union had made significant strides with other factories when it came to fighting for better hours and safety standards, Triangle refused to deal with them. Most of their workforce were Italian and Jewish immigrant women between the ages of 14 and 23, who couldn't afford to miss a single day's wages. Triangle's union-breaking tactics left their 500 workers at the mercy of their managers, who would frequently lock workroom doors in order to prevent both theft and unauthorized breaks. It was closing time on Saturday, March 25, 1911, when a fire flared up in a scrap bin under the workstation of Isidore Bromovitz. Isidore was a cutter, or person responsible for preparing the pieces of fabric that went into a shirtwaist. His cut panels would then be passed to one of the many women workers toiling at sewing machines on the open-plan eighth floor of the building. Nearly everything in the workroom was flammable, from the cotton to the tissue paper patterns to the wooden floors. From the first spark, it was only a matter of minutes before the flames engulfed the whole room, and then the two floors above. Sophia's hands were cracked and bleeding. A sewing needle was embedded in her thumb. She barely felt the pain as she gazed out the high windows, taking in the sun and the birds. She longed to be with them. Floating above the island, she called home. It was not to be. She nodded her head as her manager started to yell about the cost of fabric, how clumsy of her to bleed on the merchandise. She pulled the needle out, gently. Her fingers had gone numb months ago from steady work at the machine. She sucked the dry blood off of her finger and continued to work. She couldn't afford another dock and pay. Sophia turned her attention back to the soft fabric, nicer than she would ever be able to afford, and ran it through the machine again. Unlike some of the other girls here, she hadn't been to the labor protests. She kept her head down. The view was nice. That was enough for her. She didn't have grander dreams. Her home in Sicily was now overrun by men with too much power, killing for sulfur and citrus. America was different for her. She occasionally heard a stray gunshot outside her house, but her neighbors were friendly. People sat outside in their stoops. There was no cowering here. Safety was what she needed, and she had it. A sharp scream pierced through the office. Sophia looked around to see what had happened. One of the new girls was now missing her thumb. The manager took her aside, wrapped the severed digit in fabric, and ordered her back to her machine. The rules were clear. No one left the floor until after the work bell had rung. The stench of smoke whispered through the air. The cutters, all older men with rough but deft fingers, tended to sneak cigarettes at the end of the day. Sophia felt panic rise within her. She was not close to done with her quota. Her injury had lost her valuable time. In her rush, she accidentally sewed the expensive fabric into her own sleeve. The work bell rang, but still she sat and sewed as the other workers filed past her to the single door to the elevators. She could get in a little more work if she hurried. (laughs) Sophia coughed. She blinked rapidly, noticing the slight haze the room had taken on while she'd been busy concentrating. She raised her head, only to cock it, puzzled. All her co-workers had turned back around. They were agitated, pushing, shoving... The whole world seemed to slow as she watched them throw themselves at the doors to the stairwell and the fire escape. Somehow, above the din, she heard someone say it. Fire. In a far-off corner of the vast open room, she could see it. An orange glow, undulating in destructive energy as it snatched and tore at the tissue paper patterns that hung on the wall. It snaked toward her the red flames flaring to blue each time they touched a scrap of cotton. Smoke steadily filled the room. Her eyes watered as she tried to move through the throng growing at the exit doors. It was a wall of women pushing, yelling, clawing at the walls and each other. Some of them, in an absurdity that appeared to fit the situation, were still clutching their time cards or fussing with their hats, which were sliding from their heads because they hadn't had time to adjust the pins. Someone pushed her from behind and her knees hit the floor. She felt the crunch of shoes on her back as she struggled to get back up. No one could see where they were going. She was just another part of the fabric scraps now. Refuse left to burn as the people climbed to whatever safety they could find. She scooted farther and farther to the exterior wall. Some of the girls had broken the windows, waving desperately to the people down below. She heard the heavy thump of the door as workers pushed against it. But the locks held. A woman in a dark blue dress passed by her floating in a kind of trance. The woman approached the broken window, shoving one of the other workers aside with an almost supernatural strength. She mounted the casement in one smooth motion. Then she leaned forward and let go. The woman's screams ended abruptly. Sophia raised herself just high enough to look out the window. The corpse of her coworker was splayed on the pavement below. Red trails running out from her head. She took a gulp of fresh air, letting it fill her lungs. The heavy pounding of footsteps came from behind. She stepped to the side just in time to see several other women fly out the window. They were birds without wings, free for one glorious moment, until gravity cracked their heads open. Sophia was not ready for death yet. There had to be another exit, someplace that had been forgotten in all of the chaos. It was hard to think over the cacophony of coughs and screams. There was a stairway farther down. She pushed through the crowds of people, steadying her legs as the waves of women behind her fought through with the same energy. She would not be taken down this time. Glass continued to rain down in the room as more women took to the sky. Some people shouted that the roof would be a safe place to be, but Sophia didn't trust that. She wanted the safety of the ground beneath her feet. Her hand grasped the stairwell door, and she forced her way through the entrance to the outside. There were several people already crowded on the wrought iron fire escape, and the stairway below was blocked. The absurdly small platform beneath their feet forced them to move one at a time. Sophia squeezed through the mass of sobbing women, but she couldn't see what was blocking them from going any further. Other women started to gather behind her. Smoke spilled out onto the fire escape. Someone clawed into her back, trying to avoid being pushed off the edge. Underneath the screams and cries, Sophia heard the sound of metal straining, a slight wobble, "'Echoing under her feet. "'She stood on her tiptoes, "'catching sight of the now-crowded stairs. "'People were still pushing "'onto the small metal platform. "'The metal rattled underneath her. "'She tried to push back into the building, "'but the crowd was too strong around her. "'Bodies boxed her in from all sides. "'She clawed and fought with her co-workers, "'screaming that they were all going to die "'if they stayed where they were. "'Help would not reach them in time.' No one was listening to her. They continued to surge, some falling off the edges of the railings as new arrivals pushed their way in. The metal shook harder this time. Sophia made one last desperate push to get back toward the building. She made it one step, then another. Her feet were starting to shake, She looked down to check if it was her nerves or the building itself. The street was far below, littered with women who had jumped to their deaths. She didn't want to join them. Sophia took another shaky step. The platform gave out beneath her. She felt the briefest sensation of flight, her dress flapping like a pair of wings. And then the concrete rose to meet her. The image of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that most galvanized the American public was the young women jumping from the factory windows, their skirts billowing outward before they hit the pavement. But there was another horror. Even the era's best journalists struggled to describe. The collapse of the building's fire escape, dropping an overflow of panicked workers to the street below. The rickety structure was built as cheaply as could be, and it could by no means hold the significant weight the evacuation demanded. A means of potential salvation ended up spelling doom for the terrified workers as they spilled into the open air, eight to 10 floors up from the street. Ever since New York University acquired the Brown Building in 1929, students have reported feelings of panic, that go beyond the usual test anxiety. Night studying is often interrupted by blood-curdling screams that appear to have no source. There's a weight to the space they can't explain, as if they're always surrounded by a crush of people, even when standing alone. Coming up, we climb from the 8th floor to the ninth where the majority of the garment workers lost their lives. Now back to the story. The Brown Building is actually the second name of the 10-story building at the intersection of Washington Place and Green Street. It was first called the Ash Building after its original owner and financier, Joseph J. Ash. When Ash began construction on the building that would bear his name, he was able to negotiate several concessions with New York City building officials. Ash and his architect, John Woolley, avoided having to use metal frames and stone or concrete floors by building the structure to be 15 feet short of the 150-foot height threshold that would have demanded better fireproofing. They installed wood floors and window frames instead. A fire alarm was installed, and there was a water tank on the roof with hoses that ran to each floor. Unfortunately, on the day of the Triangle Fire, every one of the hoses failed to generate enough water pressure to spray. This left the workers with only the fire pails that were to be always on hand in case of a blaze. But once the pails were empty, there was nothing they could do. In addition to these flaws, the Ash Building also didn't have the three required staircases leading from the upper floors. Ash was able to convince the inspectors that installing a small fire escape would cover the requirement for a third staircase. On top of that, the other two stairwells were poorly lit. This corner cutting is what led to the Triangle Fire being as deadly as it was. And if rumors are to be believed, Each flaw has left a number of ghostly victims behind, haunting every inch of the brown building in the modern day. Snow was falling in the village. Walter dodged bundled-up beatniks and barely clothed hippies alike in his rush to join his fellow students inside. He crowded into the brown building with his classmates, dusting snow off his jacket. Long trails of mud made the floor slick. Through his chemistry lab, Walter struggled to pay attention. The snow was coming down in sheets, and he wanted more than anything to be back at his apartment, putting his feet up next to a cozy fire, rather than studying chemical reactions. As he watched the snow fall, he felt his eyelids getting heavy. He yawned loudly, catching the ire of his professor. Walter mouthed an insincere apology and rubbed at his eyes. The flame of the Bunsen burner was tempting him with its heat. He held his hands up to it, letting it thaw his still cold fingers. The heater kicked on overhead spewing dust all around the room. But Walter still wanted more heat. He pulled the burner closer to him, ignoring the lesson entirely. He turned the flame higher. Someone cleared their throat behind him. The professor asked Walter to leave early, since he was being a distraction to everyone else. He shrugged his shoulders, grabbing his backpack and heading out the door. He walked down the ninth-floor hallway, savoring how empty it was during class. But he wasn't entirely alone. He noticed a girl waiting at the elevator. Walter pressed the button and tried to chat the girl up. She wasn't interested. She was clutching some textbooks in her hands and tapping her foot. A rush of hot air passed between them. The ancient heating system kicking on again. She hit the button multiple times, sweat gathering on her brow. Walter reached up to help wipe it away, about to make a comment about not letting herself get too excited. She stepped back away from him, her eyes beyond annoyed. Then she dashed away down the corridor. He wanted to follow, but the elevator was opening. He debated for a moment. The warmth of home or of a pretty girl? One was for sure, but the other was a bit of a gamble. On a day as cold as this, he chose home. He stepped inside the elevator and pressed the button for the ground floor. The car groaned, shaking slightly, and then it started to descend. The speaker inside crackled to life for a moment. Screams filled the cabin. Walter covered his ears. He told himself it was just a weird form of static, but the sound persisted. Something heavy hit the top of the elevator. The car swayed, and it was all too easy for Walter to picture the tether holding him in place, snapping. But instead, the lift came to an abrupt stop. He couldn't tell if he had made it all the way down yet. The dial overhead suggested he was stuck between floors. The elevator began to heat up. He took off his winter coat, enjoying the warmth. He told himself that class would be out soon. Someone would rescue him. So he took out a book and waited. Another screech came from the call box. Suddenly, smoke started to ooze out of it. Walter fanned his hand next to the speaker. But when the first layer of smoke scattered, there was more behind it, thicker and grayer. He pulled his scarf out from under his shirt, lifting the thick fabric to cover his nose and mouth. Sweat pooled on his forehead, dripping down into his eyes. He wiped it away as best he could, struggling to see as the smoke continued to spill into the room. He began to call for help. The room had gone from pleasantly warm to sweltering. Alter touched his hand to the doors to try and pry them open. They seared his palms. After wrapping the ends of his scarf around his hands, he tried to hit the call box. Someone needed to know that the system was malfunctioning. The elevator dropped half an inch. Walter jammed his finger against the button. Smoke stung his eyes. He coughed into the scarf. Straining his ears, he listened for some response to his desperate pleas for help. Dimly, an answer came back. A high-pitched squeak of young girls poured out of the speakers. Hundreds of voices begging for help, saying they were going to die in this tiny box. He promised that if the elevator would just move, he would be able to save the rest of them. There was a fire department close by. They just had to hold on a little longer. The elevator swayed, then dropped again. Walter fell to the ground. Luckily, the air was clearer down here. He pulled the scarf off his face to take in some oxygen, and then moved it back into place. He lifted his stinging eyes to see the shadow of a pair of feet in front of him. A pair of old-fashioned heels, all buttons and pressed leather. They evaporated as he tried to touch them. Some smoke-induced hallucination. The elevator groaned again the radio exploded in a hail of sparks, but the screams only got louder, overwhelming his hearing. They were crying and begging for mercy, not from him, from God. He jammed at the bell again. The elevator dropped another foot. Walter found his own muffled voice joining in with the girls as he too started to crack under the sweltering heat in the elevator. He begged for someone to save him, someone to listen to his cries for help. The elevator swayed one more time. It jerked and started to fall. This time, not stopping. Walter braced his body against the railing. It finally came to a stop. His legs buckled beneath him and a bone snapped in his thigh. The smoke started to clear. The screams vanished. Walter was alone in a clear elevator, his leg radiating with pain. He pulled himself to his feet, still clutching the railing for support. He inhaled, trying to catch his breath, only looking up from the floor when he felt less lightheaded. He expected to see himself in the mirrored surface on the elevator doors, looking haggard and frustrated. But it wasn't his reflection looking back at him. They were women. Nearly thirty, all of them huddled into the elevator. Their clothes were torn and singed in places. Some of their heads were bent at impossible angles. Pieces of their flesh had been burned away, showing small flecks of white through the blackened skin. They met his eyes head-on, daring him to look away. He couldn't. As the elevator reached the first floor, the doors slid open to reveal a perfectly intact car, and a young male student inexplicably burnt to a crisp. The Triangle Fire was nothing if not fast. It took mere minutes for the flames to cut off all means of escape for the garment workers and desperation took over quickly. Two Italian elevator operators, Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mortillero, brought their cars back and forth from the ninth floor to the ground three times before the heat destroyed the rails. Zito's car had a little more time to evacuate survivors, but some of the workers grew impatient, prying open the elevator doors and throwing themselves into the shaft in hopes of sliding down the elevator cables, The impact of their bodies dented the car so badly that Zito was forced to stop his efforts. The elevator shafts are one of the few original elements of the Brown Building that were kept after the fire. It's said that one can sometimes catch the visages of the factory workers who were burned alive, their reflections trapped forever. Coming up, we reach the 10th floor and executive suite, where even the Triangle owners must face the flames. Now, back to the story. The owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, were both on the 10th floor of their Washington Square factory when the fire started. They managed to make it to the building's roof and were rescued along with a group of their workers. Accounts of the fires generally describe Harris as a man of action. A few years earlier, he himself had spotted smoke in a basket of fabric beside one of the operator's work areas. He used a fire pail to douse the flames. Then he searched the debris to find a cigar butt. He fired the operator. But the triangle managers were never entirely able to prevent their workers from sneaking smoke breaks on the factory floor. It would be one such smoke break, near the vicinity of Isidore Abramovitz's cutting table, that would result in the tragedy. On the day of the fire, Harris quickly arranged for the elevators to evacuate many of the women workers on the 10th floor, as he watched the flames creep up the side of the building toward them. It is not known if he considered that the 8th and 9th were already in worse shape and might be in a greater need of rescue but he was notified by a bookkeeper on the eighth floor that the fire had started below them. Regardless of the truth, he had chosen to operate his business in a building that he knew to be unsafe. His actions would cost over a hundred lives and put himself, as well as Max Blank, and his daughters, Etta and Millie, in mortal danger. Millie was impatient. Her father had promised that they were going to FAO Schwartz to get her new dolly right after work. But here she was, still waiting by his desk as he finished up boring adult things. She occupied herself with dreams of her toy. She was going to have blonde hair and green eyes and had come all the way from Germany. Daddy called her a Bisque doll, but Millie was going to call her Sarah. It was nearly time to go when the telephone near her started to ring. It was a loud, harsh sound. Nothing like the one they had at home. The woman on the line said something to Mr. Harris, who said something to Daddy. His face turned gray, the way it did when Mommy was clearly beating him at cards. He grabbed Millie's hand, but did not move. Her older sister, Etta, grabbed the other one and began tugging toward the great metal box that had carried them to the floor where Daddy worked. There were people pushing, shoving, not at all waiting their turn. Millie tried to tell Edda how cross their mother would be at such rudeness, but Edda wasn't paying attention. Millie dropped her father's hand to tug at her sister's sleeve. She hated not being listened to. Another impolite adult knocked into her, and she lost her sister's grip. She stumbled and had to catch herself by grabbing at the back of a woman's long overcoat. Millie had been to ball games and walked the streets with her father, and had even ridden the subway, but she'd never been in such a tightly packed crowd before. She felt like she was tossed in a swiftly moving river, floating toward a waterfall. She began to wail as the wave of grown-ups pushed her forward. She kicked out, desperately trying to turn around, but they were all too strong. The air was thick and hard to breathe. She began to cough, her cries choked by what tasted like birthday candle smoke. Suddenly, she felt herself lifted up and backward into her father's waiting arms. She hugged his neck tightly, burying her face in his shoulder. When she looked down, she could see Etta, big, strong, grown-up Etta, desperately squeezing their father's hand. Millie raised her gaze in the other direction to see her father, his face even more ashen, frozen, orange lights dancing in his eyes. She was calling his name when a bookish little man appeared beside them, She didn't know why she didn't resist when he took her in his arms, but she didn't. His name was Eddie, he said, and he was going to keep them safe. She watched as Eddie tugged Daddy along by his coat, Etta trailing thanks to her vice-like grip on her father's hand. She could hear Eddie saying something about the ninth floor to her father, but her ears felt like there was cotton in them. They walked into a stairwell lit only by an orange glow everything was so hot. She was sweating like they were at Coney Island. Eddie, Mr. Harris, Daddy, and some other frightened men moved quickly through the heat, climbing down. Small bits of ash floated around them. She buried her face in Eddie's shoulder. Tears flowed from her eyes. A burly man burst through the door beside them, yelling at them to head for the roof. Millie nearly lost her hold of Eddie as he turned with a jerk to head back up the stairs. Millie raised her eyes again to see her father, staring, frozen on the steps again. She followed his gaze into the smoke below them, but she could see nothing. When she blinked, she finally saw her. A woman wearing one of their shirtwaists, her hair lit like a candle, staring up at them with hard eyes. Millie yelled to her to follow them, but the woman only smiled as flames licked around her. She did not scream. She didn't even seem to notice the inferno as it moved around and through her. Millie kept her eyes on the woman's icy grin until Eddie turned the corner in the stairwell one more time. Eddie threw a piece of cloth over her head to help her breathe. Now she couldn't see anything, but she could hear people screaming, and she smelled some kind of meat burning. She coughed, her throat and lungs burning as Eddie's running jostled her in this way and that. The smoke was so thick, it coated her tongue and throat. And then, just when she was certain that she had melted into candle wax herself, Eddie ripped the fabric free. They were on the building's roof, finally able to breathe relatively clean air. He put her down gently and collapsed to the ground, still struggling for air. She approached him to see what was the matter, but he waved her off. So she turned to her father. He was staring again, this time just over the edge of the building. Millie approached curiously, head cocked to the side, There were strange shapes floating down from the windows beneath them, willowy at the top and round at the bottom, like the porcelain dolls in her dollhouse. Their skirts filled with the wind as they descended. Millie told her father they looked like dandelions floating on the breeze. He said nothing. It continued like that for a long time, until the firemen came to help them back downstairs. While Isaac Harris arranged for the escape of the 10th floor employees, Max Blank froze. His daughters, 12-year-old Henrietta and 5-year-old Mildred, were with him because he'd promised to take them shopping after work. He had to be guided by his employees to the roof, with one of them taking a screaming Mildred from him. Max Blank and Isaac Harris were indicted on charges of first and second degree manslaughter for the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, Their defense lawyer, Max Stoyer, suggested that the survivors who served as witnesses had their testimony written for them by prosecutors. The case hinged on the question of whether Blank and Harris knew that their managers were following the stated company policy of locking exterior doors to prevent theft and unauthorized breaks. The defense contended that prosecutors could not prove the owner's knowledge that the doors were locked that day, and the two men, were acquitted of all charges. However, they would be found liable for wrongful death in a 1913 civil suit, but Triangle only had to pay less than a quarter of the amount their insurance company gave them per casualty. That same year, Blank was arrested once again for locking the door of his factory during working hours. He paid the minimum fine and walked free. On a slightly more positive note, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire changed the standards of workplace safety forever. From 1911 to 1913, New York State passed major labor reforms for both workers' rights and workplace safety. The New York City Fire Department conducted a review of the factories in the city, discovering that over 200 of them maintained similar conditions to those that made the Triangle Fire possible there was pushback. Many real estate developers and factory owners stressed the low likelihood of an industrial fire compared with the cost of retrofitting their buildings for safety measures. Real estate developer Robert Dowling told the New York State Factory Investigating Commission that the number of people killed in factory fires was an infinitesimal proportion of the population and therefore didn't need protection. Union activist Mary Dreyer responded, But Mr. Dowling, they were men and women. They were human souls. It was 100% for them. With its new name and its new academic owner, the Brown Building has left its industrial history behind. Now the students of NYU stroll its halls safely as the building is up to code. A plaque on the wall outside commemorates the victims of the fire, and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory remains a rallying cry for workplace safety around the United States. Even today, workers experience safety issues that would feel very familiar to the Triangle garment workers. Amazon has reported at least six deaths in their warehouse since November 2018, most notably the passing of 48-year-old Billy Foister on September 2, 2019. The Guardian reports that Foister suffered a heart attack on the floor of an Ohio-Amazon fulfillment center. He was on the ground for nearly 20 minutes before his collapse was noted by a floor monitor, though emergency services arrived promptly. Foister was declared dead when he reached the hospital. Warehouse workers report that their managers ordered them back to their duties minutes after Foyster was removed from the floor. Amazon disputes the anonymous workers' accounts claiming that Foyster didn't die in their property and that he was treated promptly. In March 2019, another Amazon warehouse employee, Joe Bowman, went into cardiac arrest while on the job. An Amazon supervisor could be heard telling a concerned worker to go back to work while making an emergency call. Is it any wonder that the victims of the Triangle Fire can never quite rest? Not only did they not receive justice... But there are still workers today who suffer the same exploitation. For those who died in the fire, the closing bell will never ring again. Thanks for tuning into Haunted Places. For more information on the Brown Building, amongst the many sources we used, we found David Von Triangle, The Fire That Changed America, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode, and don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil De Ritter and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson.